we talked about fathers, um, Father's Day. And I made a, a comment how there is constant negative media about fathers. Remember talking about that? And if you weren't here, you, you know that to be true. This week, I read an article in the New York Post. It verified this. I'm going to share this comment just to, to begin with. The title was How Disney Teaches Contempt for Dads. This is the New York Post. It quoted a survey. It said every 3.24 minutes, watching a Disney show, every 3.24 minutes, a dad acts like a buffoon. But what's interesting about the new research is that the author, Savannah Keenan, also looked at the reaction of the children on the screen to their father's display of cluelessness. At least half the time, children reacted negatively to these, to these displays by rolling their eyes, making fun of dad, criticizing him, walking away while he's talking or otherwise. I'm not bashing Disney. I love Disney. But I think we do need to open our eyes and open our ears and realize the influence that's out there. See, Dad, you're not alone. The church is constantly receiving negative media attention as well and the butt of so many jokes. And so it's not surprising that we see that the church is not very popular in the minds of so many people today. I think there's some people who have a negative perception about the church because they base their thinking about the church on how it's portrayed in the media. Think about it. How often in a movie that you go to and you see a Christian that's depicted in that movie, they're the ones that, they're the naive buffoon. Or they're the, the uh, fun-hating legalist. Or maybe the rank hypocrite. More often than not, that's what you're going to see in the movies. And the same thing on the headlines. It's almost like the writers of these headlines enjoy and they sensationalize when someone who claims to follow the Lord makes a mistake or blows it. Minister admits that he lied. Pastor indicted for misappropriation of funds. Governor who campaigns for family values has an affair. Daughter of a candidate who attends a charismatic church gets pregnant out of wedlock. On and on. You get the impression that these seculars get the, the idea that if they just show enough people who get it wrong, that then that validates their unbelief. And there are those who don't like the church because they're tax exempt. Some individuals despise the church because years ago they were wounded by somebody in the church and they realize they're a phony and so they assume everybody in the church is a phony. But it's not just people outside the church who are critical of the church. There are a lot of attacks recently from within. There have been a number of books written, Christian books. They're very critical of the church, and they portray the church as being totally ineffective, totally irrelevant in our day and culture. One author claims that he found more genuine fellowship in a commune than a church, and he apologized to the world for our church's past transgressions. But with all the negative that's out there, with all the criticism that's out there, some of it is true. And I think we need to acknowledge that. And so as we hear the negative, as we hear the criticism, that we listen to that with discerning ears and say, God, what of that is true? And what do we need to learn from? The church is made of very imperfect people. Like me. Like you. One author, Michael Griffiths, quoted this. A high proportion of people who go to church 
have forgotten what it's all for. Week by week, they attend services in a special building and go through their particular time-honored routine, but give little thought to the purpose of what they're doing. The Bible talks about the bride of Christ, but the church today seems like a ragged Cinderella. It needs to reaffirm the non-negotiable essential elements that God designed for it to be committed to. I think he makes some valid points. So I read this. Someone else was quoting this fella. And so I looked it up. It was in a book titled God's Forgetful Pilgrims, published in 1978. That's old, isn't it? That's an old quote, but it reads true for today. At least I thought so. I do have this genuine concern for a more modern trend. I've observed some sharp younger people who are very passionate about winning the lost. And they, are, they reason that since their generation views the church as totally phony, they want to distance themselves from anything that even resembles church. So they reinvent church in their minds. They want to change it totally, completely, or the church will die. And if you visit one of their services, you would think it's anything but what you would expect. They advertise, this is a church for people who don't like church. Or this is not your mom and dad's church. Now, I need to say, and John Simmons made the great point Wednesday night, that change needs to happen. That's part of staying alive. That's part of growing. But some are extreme. Some are very questionable. Like this cartoon. Maybe you've seen this before. These two people, I don't know if you can read all that fine print. It says the name of the church there, a new sign, Elm Street Faith Boutique. And the caption at the bottom says, Our Church Growth Consultant thinks the term church sounds outdated. Kind of tells it like it is. You ever seen all kinds of signs and wonder, is that a church or what kind of church is that? Well, the truth is, attacks against the church have been around ever since the church has been around. It's always been criticized. So what I want to do, want to do today is talk about what's right about the church, what's good about the church. You know, life is all about focus. You can look at your job and focus on the, the 10% that's bad, and you can be a sour person. Or you can focus on the 90% that's good. You know, in a marriage, you can focus on the few flaws of your spouse, and you'll be miserable. Or you can be thankful for all the good that is there. The Bible tells us to think about what is good and lovely and pure. And that's what I want us to do this morning. So let's think about what's right with the church. I want you to feel good about the church and even be able to defend the church against these unjust criticisms. A couple of reasons. Number one, I love the church because I love its founder. I think we need to start there. I love the church because I love its founder. Matthew's gospel records a time where Jesus asked his disciples, what's the talk? Where's the word on the street? So it's not like as Christians we need to, to close our ears off to what's happening out there. We need to be aware of what's, what's being said. So Jesus asked the question, and the people replied, John the Baptist, or maybe Elijah, Jeremiah, maybe one of the prophets. And then Jesus got personal in verse 15. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I will tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. How many of you have something in your house, in your possession, that maybe belonged to your grandparent? Or maybe your mom and dad. Maybe it's an antique. 
Uh, maybe it's a special piece of furniture. Maybe it's a dish. Maybe it's something that your grandma cooked in and, and she passed this on to you. Maybe it's a tool that's in your garage. And the monetary value of that piece, it may or may not be a lot, but to you, it's special. Because it was special to them. Because they loved it, it was theirs. You love it and you cherish it. If you love Jesus, you're going to love the church. Because Jesus loved the church. Ephesians 5.25 says very simply, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. See, it's very important for us to understand that Jesus intended to build a church. See, it's, it's kind of hip today in some Christian circles to say, you know, to trash the church and to badmouth the church and to even disassociate from the established church. You'll hear people say things like, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm against organized religion. Or, or I, I have a relationship with Jesus, but, you know, I'm not much into, into the institutional church. And they suggested in the Bible the term church is this invisible, universal concept of believers only. But think about what we read about in our Bibles. Everyone who belonged to Christ was a part of the church. But they'll say, well, he wasn't referring to the local church there, where there's budgets and buildings and boring sermons. Well, he's got a point, maybe, on some of that. But there's a book out, The Gospel According to Starbucks. The author suggests you may find more genuine fellowship in a small group meeting in a coffee shop than in a church that gathers and goes through a ritualistic service. But throughout the New Testament, it's clear. Jesus said, I will build my church. And he intended it to be a visible body with structure and definition. Not this nebulous, but something that you could see. It's a group that gathers where there's elders in the church that are overseers of the body and there's teachers that are teaching the people. In the New Testament, the, the church was told in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. You read through the book of 1 Corinthians, for example, and, and you gather there, you can't help but notice that they met together now Granted, they got a lot of things wrong, but they were meeting together to worship, to pray together, to sing together, to give an offering, to learn Scripture together. <clears throat> the church was visible enough that when one member suffered, everybody suffered with them. It was visible enough that when one strayed, the others would hold them accountable. It was defined enough that some in the world despised it, persecuted it, was able to call them out and know who was a part of the way. The church was not just a few people who casually got together over coffee. It was deliberate, intentional. It was an organized group with the very center of the purpose of God. Think about this. The Bible knows nothing about an unchurched Christian. You don't see that in Scripture. In Acts 2.41, the New King James Version renders, And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. I shared that particular version because it mentions the word church there. Actually, the Greek says more the number, and that's what most of the versions render there. But the concept is the same. Their group, their number, and that was the church. I want to show you three symbols that describe Jesus' relationship to the church. And each of these help us to see, a, I think, a key component that are, each of them are rich. The first one is the building on a foundation. 
a building on a foundation. 1 Peter 2, verse 5 and 6, compares the church to a building. Not a church building, but an organization. And how Jesus is the firm foundation. Look what he says there in verse 5 of 1 Peter 2. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. When a building doesn't have a good foundation, it's in trouble. It's in trouble quick. If you want to know what this church is teaching our tweens, our fifth and sixth grade, this very concept, their new area, it's been called the cornerstone, teaching our youngest that Jesus is the foundation. A second symbol is the head and the body. We see this analogy in Ephesians 5.23. Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. And the head and the body, we know you, you can't separate them. You get one, you get the other. You can't have one without the other. So we're the visible body of Christ on earth. We're to be his hands, his feet, his voice. We're to have his heart and his compassion doing his will. And then the third symbol to me is perhaps the most beautiful. A groom who loves his bride. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of the water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. The groom loves the bride and he focuses on her positive traits. He overlooks her shortcomings and anything that's negative. And the Bible says that Christ is the groom. He loves the bride. And he sees his bride as washed, as pure, as holy. Dare we use the word perfect? Because we've been washed by the word. It's the most beautiful picture. That is amazing grace. In John 3, 29, Jesus says, The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. You know, we're in June, right in the middle of wedding seasons. A lot of weddings going on. My parrot law wedding was last night. And there's some more coming up. Love weddings. I read about this one that uh, the groom really loved the bride, and it was a good thing. Because when she came down the aisle, and everything was great, but when she came down the aisle, the emotion just hit her. And that happens. But well, I'm not talking, you know, tearful eyes or a little drip. I'm talking sobbing. And by the time she got down the aisle, everybody's sobbing. The groom is sobbing. And there were these ugly tears and black mascara coming down her face. It's dripping, staining her dress. The minister tried to get, them to get their composure, but it wasn't going to happen. It was just a big cry fest. And so he hurried through the ceremony as much as he could. When it came time to kiss the bride, he just lifted the veil and kind of got up underneath it, gave her a smack and put it back down. They went on, have a great reception. Everybody laughed at the moment. Wonderful honeymoon and a meaningful life. But that groom loved his bride. The groom loves his bride. And what he's looking forward to is that wedding day 
when He will see His church pure and holy. And we're going to meet Him one day. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. You know what the first thing the Lord's going to do when His bride is there? I can't help but think, just like that bride coming down the aisle, just overwhelmed with emotion, we're just going to sob as well. And if you turn to the book of Revelation, what we learn there is He's going to wipe away every tear. It's not a time of tearful, tears, it's a time of joy to be with the Lord forever. I love the church because I love the bride, and we're waiting for that wedding ceremony. Well, here's the reason number two. I love the people. I love the people in the church. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I tell you that you are Peter. And then verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. You ever wondered why he chose Peter? Is this the same Peter we know? Why would Jesus choose? We know what a key is, but why would he choose Peter? The very flawed man. And that Jesus loved him. Jesus trusted him. This most important moment in the history of the salvation of mankind after the ascension, and he gives the key to Peter. I thought about that and thought, wouldn't first century comedians have a heyday with that choice? This is the same Peter, such a hypocrite, one day walking on the water the next moment, up to his neck, drowning. This is the same day. One day he claims Jesus is the Messiah. The next day he's correcting the Messiah, telling him he's not going to die. This is the same Peter who says he'd die for Jesus. And then moments later saying, I don't even know him. And this is the same Peter, even after taking that key, says Gentiles, they're able to come in to the kingdom. And then he shows prejudice against them. But Jesus told Simon Peter, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom and the keys for opening the door. So in Acts chapter 2, it's Simon Peter who preaches that first sermon in Jerusalem and he opens the door for, for thousands of Jewish believers to be in the kingdom. And the book of Acts continues in chapter 10. It's Simon Peter who has the conversation. He speaks of the Roman centurion, Cornelius, and opens the door for Gentiles to be into the kingdom. In fact, Jesus went a step further and made a promise. Keep reading in Matthew 16, 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Binding and loosing was a, a rabbinical expression to talk about dealing with people's guilt. If you were unrepentant, then you were bound. If you were repentant, then you would be loosed. So you keep reading in the book of Acts, in chapter 3, Peter and John meet the lame man at the temple. And Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ, walk. And the chains that were keeping him from walking were loosed. And that was so important because there was a popular mindset in that time that if you had a physical infirmity, it was because of sin. And they needed to know, no, it was not a sin problem. That was a health problem. But in Acts chapter 5, it records about Ananias lying on the amount that he had given to the church. He falls over dead. Because it was sending a message. If you're going to be a part of the kingdom of God, you're going to be of His people, you need to have integrity and honesty. 
A few hours later, his wife comes in, repeats the same lie. She falls over dead. Whatever Peter was binding was bound in heaven. They're working together. You get this early on in the book of Acts. And Simon Peter was far from perfect. But God was backing him up at every step. All these disciples had a key role in the early church. But no church people are perfect. We need to keep knowing that, acknowledging that, and sharing that with others. No church people are perfect. But I'm also going to tell you some of the best people in the world are in the church. Now, there are some people in the world that I like better than some of those in the church. But some of the best people in the world, you know what I mean. The church is made of imperfect people who aspire to grow like Christ. And what happens when you make that commitment, when you desire to follow after Him, then your values are going to more align. Your character, your higher compassion, better attitudes than most people in the world. That's just what happens when you start following after Jesus. He makes you a better person. Let's say you're traveling in an unfamiliar city late at night, and you look at the gas gauge, and you can't make it much further, and so you've got to pull off, and so you take an exit. It's a, it's a rough part of town. You go into a gas station. Even though it's lit, they're closed. And as you're about to pull out, you run out of gas. There you are, not where you want to be. You've got your family in there with you, and you start to think, now What? You see three guys coming at you from the darkness. Would you be more comfortable if they had in their hands a bag of liquor or a Bible? If they were coming from a Bible study or from a bar? Now, there's no guarantees, but I would think if they were holding a Bible, you'd feel a little bit better. You might even ask them for help. See, it matters. It's the choices that you make. Some of the best people in the world are in the church. They're the salt of the earth. Number three, I love the church because I love its positive influence. He goes on, Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The gates of Hades, we're so familiar with that phrase because we've heard it so much, but do we really understand what it means? It was a Jewish expression for death. That's really what he's talking about here. The Hades is a place of the dead, and the gates of Hades is the portal to that. It's kind of, kind of giving you the idea of what's better, that, that, that there's nothing that's going to beat the church, basically. But Hebrews 2.14 refers to Satan as the one who had the power over death. And in verse 15, he says he used that power to keep people in fear and bondage all their lives. But Jesus came... To break that bondage. He has more power over death. And he liberated his people from Satan's dominion. He's broken down the gates of Hades. That's what happened. But I think there's even more significance to the imagery of the gates of Hades. Because anyone hearing those words for the first time would know the significance of a gate. That was a city's wall of defense. That was a key point in that. And so Jesus' words portray the church militant, storming the gates. They're not going to stop the church. Thus Christ assures the triumph of the church's evangelistic mission to make disciples. And we're going to win. We're going to be successful. He is building the church, and His work will not be thwarted. 
Now, I think it's important that Christ's promise in this passage should not be misconstrued. We need to understand what he's saying, but also what he's not saying. He's not suggesting that any particular church will be infallible. He's not teaching that any leaders of a church will be error-free. He's not guaranteeing that any individual church will not apostatize. He's not promising success and prosperity to every congregation. But he does pledge that the church, his body, is going to prevail and be well. And all the enemies of truth combined are not going to be able to defeat the church. We are a part of something Though Satan has attacked it from the very beginning and all of his people continue to try to to put a stop to it, it's continued for 2,000 years. And folks, that's pretty amazing. What was started 2,000 years ago is still going on. So when Jesus said the gates of Hades will not stop the church, that's not a picture of defending itself. That's an image of the church being on the offense. Gates are a defensive weapon. This is going through the gates. And so he's commissioned us to go and carry the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. God has made him Lord. He did die on the cross from us. God did raise him from the dead. And he is coming back. That's the good news of Jesus Christ, that we have the hope of life after death. And that's important to know because we need to realize that after Jesus went to heaven and the church began, they didn't just assemble together in hiding waiting for the Lord to come back. They got out into the community and spread the good news. In fact, Acts chapter 2, it continues. Peter stood before the crowd. You know these verses. Look at verse 22. Peter tells them, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to God by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead. Then verse 32, God raised this Jesus to life, and we are witnesses of it. Verse 36, therefore let all of Israel be assured of this. God had made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is to you and your children and all who are far off, for all whom our Lord our God will call. And then look at verse 41. Those who accepted this message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So the church started, you might say, with a bang. But you know what also started that very moment? The enemies of the church started erecting gates to stop the effort. Acts chapter 4, verse 18, Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, What is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. Acts 4 tells us that they grew in number to about 5,000 men. Early church historians tell us that there were over 100,000 believers in the Jerusalem church. Ever since that time, the church has proclaimed the simple truth of Jesus. And it's had an incredible influence on the culture. But the gates have continued to threaten the church. The Roman world had its gates. 
Caesar said, we are a multicultural society. You cannot say Jesus is the only way. We're going to accept all these ways. But the church did it anyway. And so Nero began to persecute them, nailing them to the cross, burning them at the stake, feeding them to wild beasts. But the blood of martyrs became the seed for growth. And by the 4th century, Christianity had become the state religion in Rome. England had gates that protected slavery. Slavery was so key to their economy. And even some people in the church owned slaves. But Christ followers like William Wilberforce and other Christians set out to demolish those gates. And it was the influence of godly people like Wilberforce who crashed the gates of that evil. Today, the Chinese government is doing everything it can to put up gates to keep the word of the Lord from spreading. But now, there are over 100 million Christians in China, most of them meeting in house churches. One statistic said there are more Christians in China maybe than any other nation in the world, and the gates of communism cannot stand against it. You know, the United States of America was originally established as a country with no gates, if you will. Freedom of religion. No religious boundaries. This nation was not intended to be a theocracy or even as a Christian nation, the way we sometimes throw that term around. But no one can deny that it was founded on Judeo-Christian principles. And all you have to do is go and listen to the words of people like our second president, John Adams. The general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. And think about the influence of the church in America, where there were few gates to stop it in those early years. It was the church, people who would wear the name of Christ, who started 106 of the first 108 higher institutions of learning, including Harvard and Yale. Or look around our country. Who established most of the early hospitals? Was it the atheist? It was the Baptists, the Methodists, and the Catholics. The church has funded most of the inner city missions, taking care of the homeless. It's the church who started most of the orphanage, like Tennessee Children's Home in our own back door. Who constantly visits those in prison? It's Christians. Who establishes crisis pregnancy centers, helping these young women through a very difficult time? It's the church. Who teaches the moral values that undergird ethics and business? It's the church. Who taught so many who are older than the civil rights movement? To sing the words, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in His sight. Jesus loved the children of the world. It was the church. When hurricanes or tornadoes rip an area apart, who is in there sending supplies without taking any off the top? It's the church. But in spite of that positive influence in this nation, there are some in influential positions who are now suggesting stricter boundaries of the church. President Washington warned in his farewell address of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion, and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would be the man, would, in vain would that man claim tribute for patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars. 
But think about it. That's what we hear now. Don't bring your Bibles in here. You can't pray in Jesus' name. Don't say Merry Christmas. We need Christians who have the courage of those early disciples to say we've got to obey God rather than man. I want to bring this home and make it personal. I want you to think for a moment about the positive influence of the West 7th Church over the years. Now, I'm a little hesitant because <clears throat> I don't want this to sound like bragging, but I do want to give glory to God for the good things that he's done. I'm kind of reminded of what happened with Joshua when he led the children of Israel through the Jordan. He got to the other side, and God told Joshua, remember, to stack those stones and to build that memorial. Look at Joshua 4, verse 20 and following. Joshua set up at Gilgal the twelve stones they had taken out of Jordan. He said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their parents, What do these stones mean? Tell them Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until the river crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us when we had crossed over. And look at verse 24. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know the hand of the Lord is powerful, and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. I believe the future of this church never looked brighter. But I also think we need to remember how the powerful hand of God has worked in this church's past in a very powerful way. I wonder how many people are going to heaven because somebody in this church shared the good news with them. I wonder how many people have since moved to another con congregation, another town, another state, another country, sharing the good news of Jesus, serving the Lord. How many people have grown in their faith and been blessed because of our TV ministry? And let's not forget our primary task to make an eternal difference, our primary task to seek and save the lost. But how do you measure the number of marriages that have been saved? How do you me measure the number of children that didn't make the wrong choice and they stayed off alcohol and drugs or out of jail? How many people has this church bought their medicine or paid for their light bill or gave them food to eat when they were hungry? There wouldn't be young people nurturing this church, taking to the gospel in other parts of the world. I know God could have raised up godly people in other places, but there are some godly people that He used here to do some amazing things. And frankly, I don't see that kind of thing happening with a group that just casually meets at a coffee shop. But here's the challenge. We don't end our worship service each Sunday with a report saying, you need to know, Barry and Tina had an intense counseling session this week but we're prayerful that they saved a marriage. We don't share that. We're not going to stand up here and tell you that Philip and Joel drove a couple of hours to talk to one of our college students whose faith was on the brink because they were making some major life decisions, and that young lady has decided to continue following. The Lord. We don't share that. We don't share every week the number of prescriptions we buy or the power bills that we pay. We don't give you a list of all the names of the good people who come hungry and then we give them food from our pantry. But all of that happens, and it happens all the time. But we don't have a billboard, and we don't share those kinds of numbers. And you know, that's how it ought to be. Because we're called to be salt of the earth. You don't get up from the table and go, boy, that was delicious salt. 
the salt is there and it does its job, but nobody's tuning its horn. As the church of Jesus Christ, we go about doing good and we influence the world in a positive way. That's why we're here. That's what we're called to do. That's the influence of the church. I know I'm running late, but let me just share one last thought. I put on the, the first title slide and it's on your outline there. It's the little sign out in the front of our building. It has a little bit of our church history. We started on Main Street, 1848. Moved to High Street in 1882. If you're new to town, the Polk Presidential uh, Space, that's the second facility for this church. Moved here in 1925 and then added building and building and building and building and building and building. You know what that tells us? A church is not about a building. And it made me wonder in 50 years when people are taking note of this church, maybe we're right here, maybe we've moved elsewhere, who knows where we'll be in 50 years. Most of us won't be here in 50 years. We'll be with the Lord. But when the city of Columbia, Murray County, what are they going to say about the influence of this church? There is nothing, nothing like the gospel of Christ to change and influence a culture for good. The power of the gospel influences culture and it has from generation to generation. So don't grow weary in doing good. You keep letting your light shine. You keep being salt. You keep making a difference. You keep following Jesus. I'm going to say a short prayer. And then we're going to offer an invitation. Stand and sing and allow anyone who needs to make a decision for the Lord. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ, we want you today to profess that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Let Him make you a new creation. As you're baptized, your sins are washed away, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and you begin to make that positive influence. But I also want to say a word to some of you who don't have a church home. Maybe it's time for you to say, this is it. These are the ones that I want to go to heaven with. This is my church family. I'm going to hold them accountable. They're going to hold me accountable. I want to be supportive and love these elders. I want these elders to love and support me. You need to make that decision as well. Or if we can pray for you in any way. Let's pray together. God and Father, we love you. And we're so thankful that as we read and know that Jesus loved the church. And we thank you that he loves each of us individually. Even though we have some pretty significant stains and wrinkles. That because of his blood, he doesn't even see them that we've been cleansed by the washing of the water through the Word. May we be the church that is a worthy bride for our coming groom. And Lord, we look forward to that day, that beautiful wedding day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Won't you come as we stand and sing to encourage you. <clears throat>